If hearing this episode is distressing for you, call Lifeline on 13 11 14. That's 13 11 14. Hello, uh, my name's Simon Quayle. I was the coach of the Kingsley Football Club 20 years ago. We left for a trip, a footy trip to Bali. You met Simon in our first episode when he narrowly escaped the burning Sari Club. When I first met him in Bali in the days after the attack, it struck me what an incredible soul he was, holding it together for so many, a natural leader, refusing to leave until he'd accounted for all of his mates. Pretty much about four or five hours after we arrived, a terrorist attack on the Sari Club happened and uh, we're all scrambling big time to, you know, find and survive and just wondered what happened. Simon's wife, Norrie, was also a really big presence, even though she was back in Perth. My name is Norrie Quayle. I'm Simon's wife of 25 years. The night of the 12th of October 2002, I was home with my two young sons at the time and I was woken at about 10 minutes past one in the morning with a text message from Simon telling me that um, an explosion had happened in Bali. Norrie, like her husband, was supporting and comforting others from day one and was helping to heal so many broken lives. And it was almost like life just stopped right then and this new life, like the life that we thought we were having, just went bang, that's it, not happening because the husband that I married six years prior died that night because he didn't come home the same person and I, I, I you know, you can't imagine that anybody could experience something like that and still be the same person. And that's what I wanted to explore in this episode, healing, when to step up and just as importantly, when to step back. What can we learn from those who have survived the unthinkable, such as a terror strike? I'm Ali Donaldson. This is episode four of Shockwaves, The Bali Bombings, Healing. In 2002, Simon Quayle was 32 years old. It was his first year coaching the Kingsley Cats and he'd taken them to the grand final. And this end-of-season footy trip to Bali was meant to be a team-building celebration. Two decades on, I was surprised to hear the planning that went into it. Yeah, the, the footy trip was really exciting. It had been organised really early on in the football season as well. So, And I was part of that committee, but one of the fellows that died, Jason Stokes, is probably the main person that organised it. And he collected money every single week off every single person. So the time it came to pay for the tickets, most of the, the young fellas had already paid for their tickets and worked pretty hard. For some, it was their first trip overseas away from their families. They'd only flown into Bali that day and were on their first night out at the Sari Club when it was blown up. Somehow, Simon survives, gets back to the team hotel and contacts Norrie. And so I text Norrie to say that it had been a, a blast and I'm looking to seeing how much is surviving. And so you imagine her receiving that. It's like, what the? 
he basically just said and just rattled off a few of these names. He goes, the team list is in my football bag. You need to go and get it. You need to ring this person, this person, this person, this person. So keeping in mind I was the wife of a football coach of an amateur football team who I would occasionally wander down the, to the park on a Saturday afternoon with the kids to watch from the other side of the oval, you know, like it wasn't, I wasn't involved in the football club in it really in any way. Um, we ended up by dawn, there was, my house was full of people, a lot of strangers as well that I didn't know, as well as, you know, people from the football club. It was a really, really difficult, you know, obviously conversation to have. For Simon, it marked the start of a new mission. I remember him telling me then he wasn't leaving Bali until he'd accounted for all of his team. I remember standing in front of the, the TV alley and, and looking and they've got the live feed on there and saying, oh, three dead, five dead, seven. And we're trying to think, this is not bad. You know, our seven or eight that are missing, you know, there's a great chance they're going to, they're alive somewhere. And so that became our, the next journey finding them and we we and I thought there's probably a group of five of us that that went to every hospital every clinic every possible place on the island there was a guy Phil Britton which he, he was badly burnt so we'll use him as an example we could not find him anywhere and we thought he was certainly had had died but then a friend of their friend rang up and said so he'd somehow contacted them and he were, yeah, we found him. And I still remember that, that first time where we saw Phil. So uh, such a strong-willed uh, man he was and, and just awesome footballer, just a real a great person. And I remember when he saw us, because he was in a room by himself, and he stood up like this on his bed and there was red, red, like red like a crayfish. His back was even more. Uh, all I had was a fan going around and I distinctly remember thinking, how does he bear this pain? But it was so exciting to find him. We then had to still find that seven. That's probably when we came across to you. We are probably eight, seven at that point. It was a journey that would take them into the abyss. I remember we went to the morgue. We had the next bit, bit was looking at photos of every single part, person, jewellery, anything that's significant. So uh, there was a couple of us that went and, and looked at those photos and trying to identify, you know, is that this person, is that that person? Catching up with Simon now, I asked him why he stayed when understandably so many others were getting on the first plane out. I just didn't want families coming across in these circumstances to try and find their, their sons. It wasn't right. So me and majority of the, the people, not everyone, because everyone's different, you know, they were scared, they were wanting to get home, all different stuff, which was fine as well. We weren't going to leave until it came to that point there was nothing more we could do. Many of the victims suffered such shocking blast injuries. Identifying them required DNA testing and a mountain of official paperwork. It was so bad in Bali, all right, with, with death and, and sorrow, and, and it was so difficult to find and get forms. And Nori will know this from, the, from her side of the, in Perth, 
to get forms, so what's the process to how it is, we'd at least, or I'd at least had a process in mind and, and found some really helpful people from the AFP and stuff like that that were doing a, a marvellous job. So I at least had a network of, of doing it. So we knew about the DNA. We'd actually, re through Norrie, requested the DNA and people to send it way before it even came public because we had a, a network, the AFP. And remember, this happened 20 years ago when most people didn't own their own mobile phone, let alone have access to Wi-Fi. Communicating was really hard. Luckily, Simon did have a mobile phone on him. You know, it wasn't really social media or anything like that back then. Yeah, we had a, a blue Nokia. The only reason I took it was mainly for work and uh, Nori and the kids were going to come over to Bali in about three days afterwards. So didn't take a charger because I thought, hey, we'll get one charger, hardly use it. And then uh, we had to try and preserve the battery because you imagine lots of people trying to ring and parents, a range of people. So I turned it off. I reckon for about five or six minutes, may have been slightly more, turned it back on. There was 1,025 missed calls in that quick bit of time. And then the information from Simon was coming, was becoming a little bit more clear as well as to actually what had happened. And, you know, obviously I just wanted him home. I was like, well, you just need to just come home like now. And he was just in that role of, he just went into that autopilot of, no, I can't, I have to sort this before I leave. Over the next harrowing week, Simon Quayle accounted for all of his team and then headed for home. But healing others remained his focus. When I came back to Perth after all that, all the things that were happening, I probably, or I know, I still continue that role of, of caring and it wasn't about me so much or even, even our family. I mean, it was, but it, it wasn't. Uh, it was more about making sure that they're, they're right and they're experiencing and I including the parents as well. So when I came back, I'm sitting on the plane and I'm planning what I'm going to do when I get back there. And, and it was something that was just stuck with me that the last words or the last images of their sons, I could portray to them. So I contacted all the parents and went over one by one, just talk about things that came across, for example, uh, John O. Wade, who was sitting next to me on the plane, who, who passed. So I spoke to his parents. He was sitting next to me and, you know, he was talking about this. So there was something bright, some little bright spot that they could hold from there. So, and, and others was, you know, we brought some luggage back and a range of just their personal belongings. But when Simon got home, it was clear to Norrie that her husband was changed forever. It's here that his journey to healing truly began. You get back, you've, in some ways, you maybe even your own coping mechanism as being that leader for a while, but yep. at a certain point, you do have to take care of yourself. Yeah. What, what did you do? Did you do counselling? So, yeah, so when I, when I got back, like a lot of men in life, we, we think we're, we're okay, all right? Not uncommon across men as a broader picture, but one thing, obviously marrying Nori, got really awesome in-laws, all right? And so Nori's dad, PK, a Vietnam vet, he had his own issues in the past and 
you know, like a lot of those vets, they didn't acknowledge them till way after. So he saw something there that I needed to look at, which is my obviously my mental well-being. I also, from a, my perspective, yes, why should I see a psychiatrist for? Why should I'm, I'm okay, all right? But when I first took that step, it wasn't for me and my health, and because I thought I was okay, it was more about all my children and and Nori and 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 making sure that I'm. I'm right for them going forward. And that's what I, probably what PK offered more about in the longer term outlook rather than this little short bit that I'm okay. Nori acknowledges the lasting impact the event has had on all of them. That it's like a pond when you drop the rock in the middle of the pond and you have the ripples for any form of tragic event, trauma, grief. You know, for a lot of people it's that initial where the, where the rock has actually dropped is where the um, emotions and the stress and all that comes from. And others that might be a little bit on the peripheral or still involved with it, but it might not be right then. It's the, the next year or the next year or five years or ten years. And it might not even be a particular event that is related to the initial that triggers all of the, the emotions. And for Simon, it was Nori who absorbed the greatest shockwaves on his behalf. She grabbed my emotion when people were people were bad mouthing me, people were gratching me. She was guarding me, protecting me, all those sort of bits where I was able to just let it yeah. divert off, drop off. Where Nori Nori took it all. For Simon, it took a few years, but then he made a decision that shocked many. One he believes helped save his own life. He chose to cut all ties with his team, the Kingsley Cats to focus on healing himself and his family. It was the end of the second year of footy coaching that I needed to walk away. And again, it wasn't because of anything else. It was just, I needed it for me. And that included friends that were part of that football club. Nori and I, and it was was both of us, wasn't just me, that step away was such an awesome relief, all right, because I wasn't, they're looking after the person that needed the conversation anymore, that that needed to go to them or their parents or even a health practitioner. And so all those combinations, yeah, just it just made so much sense. And, and yes, at times it might have been hard, but I reckon it was in hindsight, well, actually was the best decision ever for me just to focus on me and focus on us and that bigger picture, because it it gets hard on on relationships and family. The Quails had two other people who'd become like family to them since Simon first met them in the hours after the bombs. Australian Federal Police Officers Mark Lang and also Andy Thorpe. These relationships were crucial for Simon's healing. When we were in Bali, I think about day two, we were, uh, a whole group of us, all the boys were interviewed by the Australian Federal Police. And there was three or four people that came along of the AFP. There was Andy Fort, who interviewed me, and I could talk about that interview, and it was such an awesome interview at the time, and he was such a caring, beautiful man that I needed to, as a leader, was able to take a step back and focus just on me for a moment. You heard from Andy Thorpe in episode two. Andy was flown to Bali just 24 hours after the bombings, and one of the first things he did was sit down with Simon. I um, sat down to 
get a proper full statement from Simon. I didn't know whether he was up for it, but he said he was because he said he was the captain coach and it basically um, had taken leadership of the 11 fellows that were left from the Kingsley Cats. Uh, so I sat in Simon's room for about four hours and he was telling me where he was, basically when the bomb detonated, uh, who was there, what he saw when he came to and how he escaped from the building. I don't know that I'd ever dealt with somebody who'd suffered so much trauma so quickly after the event. He lost a lot of friends uh, in an incident. He, he was uh, away from home. He was basically in charge of the group at that time and of the other 10 that was still in Bali. Nine of those had been in the club and had sustained some sort of injury. They were all traumatised by what had happened. I, when I'd met Simon, he'd been at the mortuary going through the body bags as other people had been, just to try and identify his teammates. Andy gets the statement, but he keeps checking in on the Kingsley Cats, and with good reason. Over the next few days in Bali, I'd never seen anything like it. The tourists cleared out. The bustling streets were deserted. And who was left? Well, a lot of really heavily grieving people, investigative teams and journalists like me. Locals had shut up shop because the tourists were gone and tourism was Bali's economic lifeblood. So for those left behind, it was pretty tough. Simon and his team, because they were reluctant to return without the, without the boys that they'd lost... They, they basically got stuck there because all of the commercial flights were cancelled um, because everyone had already left. 11 members of the Kingsley Cats that we met um, were feeling a little bit isolated by that time because most people had left. So I told my crew that we had to stay after the event to sit down and have a drink with them because um, they obviously needed that and they needed to talk about it because you don't get over these things without talking about them. So I think we sat from about midnight till four o'clock in the morning having a drink with them around a pretty long table there. And it was like a roller coaster of emotions around the table. Every, everyone that was there, bar the one, one member of the team that wasn't in the Surrey Club, uh, had some sort of injury and they were recounting the events uh, around the table going they'd be okay some, at some stage and then they were off um, at other times. It's burnt in my brain when one of my friends sat down with one of the young kids from the Kingsley Cats at the time. Um, it was his first day away from Australia and from his family. I think he was 19 at the time. On the Saturday of the bombing, they left Perth that day and he'd been dancing with some girl in the Surrey Club and when the bomb uh, went off, he got up off the floor and she was dead basically on the floor near where he was. And he was obviously traumatised and uh, scared. He said he was too scared to go anywhere. And my work colleague put his arm around him and basically said, you know, if you're scared, come and stay with me. And I've told my work colleague, uh, you know, that I would never forget 
him for what he said at the time to that kid. So, sorry, I get a bit emotional thinking about it. Over the next couple of days, we saw them each day, I think. Um, we caught up to see how they were travelling, but we were suggesting to them that they needed to get home because people would be concerned about them. Simon was saying, well, we can't find a way to get home. And, uh, of course, my friend suggested to him that he have his father-in-law call Kerry Stokes and ask Kerry Stokes would he send up his plane to pick them up, which actually happened, which I thought was amazing. I couldn't believe it either, but it did happen. Kerry Stokes, the Australian media magnate, sent his private jet up to bring them home. But for the Kingsley Cats, it was the AFP officers who had saved the day. I cannot say a bad word about them. All I can say is the most magnificent thing, how, how they were. Number one, they, they caught the terrorists, most of them, within the first year. And that, and that gave Norrie and me, and, and you were there, Ali, the opportunity to feel a lot safer to go back on the one-year anniversary. And... The one-year anniversary was such a relief, and I'm even getting a shiver now, it was such a relief. There was this weight on your shoulders that you had, and and a lady, uh, Mrs Nimmo, said to me once, which is one of the boys' mum, that you'll have this weight on your shoulder, and each each time, each week, you'll throw a rock away or a pebble away, and and it'll reduce. And that that one-year anniversary was the time where a whole heap of rocks and boulders were thrown off and it was it was so scary. I remember sitting at the airport, do you remember that? And arrived at the airport and, and the AFP were there. So Andy Fort was there, which is one of the the fellas that, that caught these boys, these men, these baddies. He was there and he greeted me and Nuri and it was so, so good. I don't think he actually left Bali for that whole year, all right? You're there as an investigator, as a police officer. But it becomes so much more than that in that moment, doesn't it? Absolutely. As a result of Bali, the AFP established a, uh, a family liaison officer network, and their job is to maintain liaison with families who are victims of serious crime. And I think part of what they're taught is that they try to remain separate you know, not emotionally involved with the victims. In this particular instance, that was just impossible to do. And, you know, you can't, you can't help but form a bond with people that lasts forever. Well, you know, it's 20 years on and we're still friends. So. After the, the bombing, I think they, um, they made uh, four or five framed Kingsley Cat Bali Tour 2002 presentation things um, and included a photo of the tour party before they left on that Saturday of the bombing all wearing the same shirt and the surviving 13 members of the club signed it and basically presented it to me I think it's, you know, like I say, one of four or five they did just to um, show their appreciation for um, for the way we help look after them, I suppose. 
The Gift has a plaque with a very special message and its words affect Andy to this day. To us and the rest of the AP, uh, shining light in our darkest hours. Some such thing. At this point, Andy's overcome by emotion. But something that's really stuck with me happened 19 years ago. I caught up with them all again in Bali on the eve of the first anniversary of the attacks. And Simon had organised a friendly footy match. Anyone, everyone could play or, you know, they could heckle from the sidelines. A lot of that went on. Survivors from around the world, Balinese, locals, medics, police. At times, it you know, it felt like there were 100 people on the field. And Nori was there on the boundary lines, and that's when I first interviewed her. Oh, God, I don't know. It's very exciting stuff. I'm really not too sure who, who even is winning, whether it's the blue or the black. But no, it's going great. Really good day. On the eve of the first anniversary of the Bali bombing, survivors, family and friends took it out on the field. We're representing everybody that was hurt and injured last year, those that didn't make it. We've got a bloody big responsibility today. This was a chance to capture some happy memories. A year ago, many of the blast victims had come to Bali for end of footy season celebrations. Today, they claimed back some turf. Simon has fond memories of it too. That was really good. And I organised that and, and tried to do it mainly from a distraction in such a volatile environment, you know, both the emotions and I, I just I just thought it'd be better for a, a lovely, caring emotion that we can all have a bit of a fun. The bit that I wanted to make sure it wasn't just about Kingsley Football Club. It was about whoever wanted to be there, including the Balinese as well. So that was another really key for it. And we organised a lot of money for that and that went to the orphanages. So there was a double side. <laughs> Whilst we're, we look back now, 20 years on, you think, you know, we have so much, so much to be thankful for. We have beautiful, grown men that are our children and we're healthy and we, you know, have a lovely family and all that sort of stuff. But it's it's been a really difficult kind of, a really difficult road. It really has. And, and a path that you sort of think, I wonder if, if, where would we be if, you know, because, yeah. you know, so, so much of our everyday life is still impacted. You know, we talk about people that have done a mountain of work and, and heroes, and if, in my eyes, Nor- without Norrie, and we talk about relationships, and Norrie and I talk about this, I would be in some hole somewhere, you know, with some mental illness, struggling big time if, if Norrie's and our relationship died as well from the Bali bombings. Mm. And it's just, yeah, it's, it's just a solid, You know, she just provides me that solid rock. And every year, when they can, Simon Quayle joins his AFP mates at the AFL Grand Final. (laughs) 20 years ago, very few people had mobile phones. In the next episode, you'll hear how the rise of social media has created fresh trauma, the weight that recounting the story has had on some of the victims and how they've coped. Someone said to me, oh, geez, mate, you must make a movie on TV all the time. You must be making so much money out of this. I looked at him and said, where would I be making money?
Shockwaves, The Bali Bombings is a co-production between Network 10 and Listener. Hosted, written, researched and produced by me, Ali Donaldson. Script editing by Jennifer Goggin and Jake Morecambe. Sound design and audio production by Dave Stein. Audio recordists, Owen Wynn, Ben Patrick, Nathan Hill, Jake Staunton and Carl Carousella. Ali Aitken is the podcast content partnership manager for Network 10. Melanie Withnall is head of news and information at Listener. If hearing this episode is distressing for you, you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14. That's 13 11 14.